Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. And as always, feel free to reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Got to send my special thanks out to the patron team. So thank you to Mary, Adam, Candace, David, Michael, and Susie. Couldn't do it without you guys. I appreciate all your contributions. Okay, so this is going to be the part two episode with Charlotte Wiggins, the interview that we did last week. So uh, we ended up going over about two hours and 15 minutes. I tried to divide it up as close to in half as I could. It's a little bit of an abrupt kind of uh, transition there. So I do apologize for that. But we basically left off. We were just starting to talk about overwintering and some strategies. And we just kind of rolled right into it. So I'm going to go ahead and and jump right into that right now, uh, that portion of the discussion. And I hope you enjoy Definitely great info. Well, on that subject of kind of overwintering, it really leads well into the next question. So someone had posted this morning and said, on the topic of overwintering, and it's got kind of five or six things here. I think we just kind of covered one of them, but I'll run through real quick and see if we can get your take on these. So um, how do you, like in your area, how do you over overwinter? Do you, do you insulate? Do you wrap? Do you do... Uh, quilt boxes or, you know, one, I think you mentioned that you would either do like a single deep or a couple mediums and, but they were asking like, how many boxes do you typically use? Do you put sugar inside? And then the last question was how cold does it typically get there? Which of course is a moving target and a bit of a variable thing. But so just as a quick recap, it's, is there in, insulation, wrapping, how many boxes, sugar and quilt box? So, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. When I started, our temperatures here were colder than they are today. There was a gradual warming in this area. I'm in US, I was in USDA hardiness zone 5B. They're now saying 6A. That means that they've taken an average of the temperatures over the last 13 years, and they, they, they tell you what temp, you know, how low the temperature will go on the average. The problem with that is it's on the average, right? Some years you might have a much colder winter, and uh, some years you might have a warmer winter. But it, it, the, the trend is definitely warming up. So we don't have as long of a winter as we used to have. We have longer springs and falls and shorter winters and summers. Having said that, our winter, the last three years, has basically spanned from about November to February, maybe March. That's probably a month less than it used to be. Our used to be, our first hard frost here is usually Halloween, end of October, and then you would go into winter through March. Well, it's being warmer now in November, and and temperatures have been warming up in March. So in general, people around here will use a deep or two mediums as the brood box, and then one to two supers on top. I've had people tell me that they've also wintered over with just a beef, which seems a little stressful for the bees. Yeah, a light, well, yeah, as stressful for the bees. But I've, I've heard people, if it's a small enough colony, maybe they can pull that off. In terms of how to prepare for bees, I have for years wrapped my hives with a, it's a quilted plastic. I got it from Minnesota. Because I'm on the side of a hill. I, I have a 45-degree angle facing west. And so it, for me, it's more of a windbreak for my hives than anything. I have put old Christmas trees in front of them just to give them a little bit of a, of a protection from the wind. And, but for the most part, I leave, they have screen, some of them have screen bottom boards, some of them solid bottom boards. That doesn't seem to make a difference in their survival. 
I do make sure that the entrance reducers are down to the smallest size, and I do check to make sure there are no mice in there before I turn it to the smallest size. My, my last inspection of the season. And there's been some discussion recently. My friend David, who's been keeping bees as long as I have, he's my bee buddy, he's been using half-inch to one-inch insulation. You can get them at a home and garden center. I think they look blue. He's been cutting those out and using them as an inner cover. He also puts a hole like you would have in an inner cover. And he thinks that has helped his bees wintering over. Now, he lives in a other side of town, different growing environment than I do, but he still worries about the wind as well on his place. So I'm going to try that this year. But for the most part, my bees have wintered over well on their own with the, just the wrap. And I, a couple of winters, I didn't put anything around them, and they did okay. So what your friend mentioned sounds very similar. I think it was David just said is very yes. similar to what I've done for probably eight or nine years. It is my favorite thing to put into the hive, and it's I use it year round, but it's basically about a three inch top piece, and okay. it's got vents all the way around with just number eight hardware cloth. And in the summertime, I just leave it like it is. It's completely closed, so the bees can come all the way up to it and use it as a little bit of a top entrance if they want. Some, nice. Yeah, sometimes a year I go ahead and put some hardware cloth over it because I don't want robbers and I don't want them to have to defend that other area. Now, in the wintertime, I put, because there is a hole in the middle of it that I just have covered with hardware cloth. It's probably about maybe three inches wide by four inches long, kind of like an oval. In the wintertime, I put a two and a half or two inch piece of that foam insulation in there. And then, so as that, you know, that heat and that damp air is rising up, it kind of gets absorbed into that so it's not dripping down on them. But yet it helps to keep things nice and warm. And in the summertime, it provides great ventilation going up. Oh, I, I love that Oh, idea. I'm a huge yes. fan. And I've, I've been using these now for about like eight or nine years. And I've had no, like, I, I think the any failures I've had have been completely unrelated to anything with moisture dripping or, I mean, it, the ventilation, right. oh, it's... My favorite thing. So I will send you a link to that because those are great. I would love to see that. Well, and if for the beginning beekeepers, you can make a, a screened inner cover, right? It's like a little picture frame that goes on top of your whatever your high body size is. And then you stretch number eight hardware cloth across. You cut it to size. You staple it in. And instead of having that hard inner cover, you have a screen inner cover. So when you're looking at your bees, they don't fly up at you, right? Oh. And you can check, and that also helps with ventilation. Great idea. I must, have made, I must have made those, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And it's probably the best thing I ever did as a beginning beekeeper. You know, it. it I mean, we had 115 degrees here last summer. Oh, geez. And that's the, bees die at that temperature. And we were at our, we have, um, how many eight colonies that are teaching apiary and David and I looked at the temperature and we jumped in our cars and drove out there and the bees were all on the bottom. They weren't hanging on the frame. It was so hot inside those hives. So we ripped off any inner cover that was solid. We took the metal covers off. We had some migrating wooden covers that we slapped on there instead of the pretty you know, metal one. Sure, yeah. We made sure the entrance reducers were all open. We put a little piece of wood under the cover to help them create that chimney effect of, you know, of air through. We saw some bees at the front trying to push air with their little wings, but we went ahead and added that little stick on the back so that that helped them. The ones that had the feeding shims have a hole in the front, just like they have an entrance at the top. But the feeding shims can also act like a, a ventilated inner cover if you don't have them. And when we went back, we, we checked six of them. When we went back to check the first one after we'd done all this, they were back up on their frame. You know, they were able to go back to do their bee thing because it just wasn't so hot. Wow. That's, so anything yeah. you can do with, with temperature <laughs> regulation is a good idea. Yep. Yep. And that's part of the discussion we have around, you know, I think that, that people will ask questions about that. Hey, I'm seeing a lot of bearding. I'm seeing a lot of bees that are outside, not inside. Is this a concern? You know, and, and that's where I kind of tell people hey, it, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to get hot enough. It's going to happen. Right. Uh, but the thing about it is, is doing everything you can, like you just pointed out to make sure there's as much airflow as possible. 
and uh, and hopefully those really really hot days because that's a, the worst thing in the world having a colony absconded because it's hot and then they go somewhere where they can't even establish themselves and survive the winter. So yeah, that's devastating. The next thing that that I have on the list here is uh, swarm catching, and I know you and I had a chance to kind of chat briefly about this this earlier. Uh, and you know, on the um, you know the technical level, I think it's it's you know like you got you know, swarm traps and you have things you do around. Um, what do you call it? More of like passive, you know, swarm catching. And then you have the scenario like I had with my next door neighbor, where uh, my hives aren't even at my house. I just happened to walk past the window and, and saw, literally saw a swarm <laughs> moving its way across my neighbor's yard. And I texted them and said, "Hey, there's a swarm. Do you mind if I grab it?" And they said, "Yeah, go ahead." So that's more of like your active swarm catching. But I think that uh, you know you had brought up a comment yesterday that I, I'd love for you to kind of elaborate and, and share more thoughts on, but. You say, yeah, they're, they're not just free bees, right? And, you know, so right. any, anything you have around, you know, swarms and swarm catching, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, first, swarm catching is great bragging rights, okay? I mean, if you've caught a swarm, you have a story to share, right? At, a, at any kind of event, over coffee, there are some fabulous swarm catching stories. One of my funniest ones was when I first started, a gentleman who was much more experienced had a bunch of empty boxes in the back of his truck and he was going fishing and he's driving down the road and people start flagging him down. There was a swarm chasing the empty, you know, hive in the back of his truck. So, I mean, there's a ton of great swarm stories, but when you're thinking, especially if you're beginning, you like to think of, and people will tell you, Oh, don't go buy bees, go catch a swarm. Well, swarms are not free bees. First, they do travel with small high beetles and varroas, so you're not pest-free. Secondly, the first swarm, right, the primary swarm, is a older queen leaving with a third of a colony, and she's leaving her daughter behind. But she may or may not have enough sperm still saved in her spermafica to continue the colony. So unless you know what to look for, she might be laying for the first couple weeks or first couple months, and then all of a sudden she stops laying. Now, if the bees are strong enough, they might be able to build, right, have a supersedure cell that they develop. But if you're a new beekeeper, you may not know what to look for. Sometimes they don't build a supersedure cell, and then you have issues with your colony. So how much does it cost to buy yourself a mated queen these days? Fifty bucks. If you're buying a virgin queen, it's 25 plus shipping. So unless you have a local source for those queens, and that tends to be June, July around here when they've caught the swarms and they've settled in for a while, and then all of a sudden they go out there and they don't see any eggs and they don't see any brood. When you need a queen, you don't always have access to one. The other thing with swarms is you don't know the genetics. You don't know what you're inheriting or what you're bringing into your apiary. And there are different breeds of bees, right? You've got the Carnolians, you've got the Russians, you've got the Italians. And even though they're kind of mutt bees, they have different times of the year when they brood, right? When they, when they build babies. If you don't know that, you might be looking at the swarm and going, oh, they're not doing you know, they're not doing well. I've got to requeen. When they're doing perfectly fine for what their species or their breed is, but you don't know what that is. So the more experience you have, the better you off in managing swarms. The statistics on swarms are interesting. Half of them don't make it through their first winter. 60% don't make it through their second winter. And it's interesting. I'm not quite sure what all contributes to those numbers, except that people have a tendency to think that swarms can take care of themselves. And that's not true. You do want them to take care of themselves, but you need to spend a little more time making sure that they are healthy. I've had people collect swarms and never feed them. Well, depending on what time of year you get them, if they're in the spring, yes, you cannot feed them because hopefully they will have a queen laying and she'll have young bees that are the ones that produce the wax. But if you're catching a swarm in summer or early fall, those bees are older. They may or may not be able to produce wax. And so you may have a swarm that's in a new box with 
frames without wax on it, and they're not doing anything because they're just, they've outgrown their ability to produce wax. So not that you can't do something about it. You can. You can put frames with wax in there. But you need to have some, you need to have some bees, right, that you can borrow from to do that. And you need to have some experience to, to recognize that your bees need that kind of help at that time of year. We had a lady last year that got a swarm in September, and she fed them all through winter successfully. And around here, we don't let you call yourselves a beekeeper until you fold a colony through winter together at least once. And then you get a little pin. We have a little pinning ceremony in March, and we say, oh, you get to call yourself a beekeeper now. Nice. And that, that encourages people to understand that you're not a beekeeper just by having bees. You actually have to work with your bees successfully. And I asked her what she was, she was sugar water, just one-on-one sugar water without anything in it. And I said, okay, well, coming into spring, though, encourage them to go get the nectar in nature because that will be healthier for them than the sugar water. And she lost them in the summer. And I would contend to you she lost them because they were, they were not getting the right nutrition that they needed. Interesting. She did she did everything she could to keep that colony going. She kept asking us, how, do, you know, how can you guarantee that I'll keep the colony alive? I said, I can't. You know, you're doing everything that I know to do, but it's going to be up to the genetics of the bees and what kind of food they can get into. On the other side, there are other people who have very successfully done the same thing. So there's no guarantee, right? If you're, if you're depending on catching swarms to set up a beekeeping business, for example... That's not a good strategy because it, it may take more work and you can't depend on the bees surviving. If you start out with nukes and packages, your odds are higher for success. But, and you're definitely not free, right? You're going to be spending money on the sugar to feed them, buying queens, maybe borrowing a frame of brood from somebody else to keep that swarm going right until the queen lays. So there are some expenses that are associated with that. So I think you just shattered the dreams of a few listeners here. I know we got a lot of swarm trappers out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, heck, you know, and we have a group of people who go swarm catching just for the fun of it. They don't want to keep the bees. They just want to go, you know, for the bragging rights. And, and we encourage that because that they learn something about the bees doing that. What I don't want is to free bees that are, that are the best bees to get for beginners. They're not. They are a little bit more work. Doesn't mean you can't be successful, but you need to have a little more experience with the bees to recognize the trouble signs, right? That you might see with a swarm. Uh, all, all great points. That's, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, some considerations there to keep in mind. Now, I have a couple more here. So we've got, um, I think the next two actually kind of tie in together. One of them is, you know. Uh, a lot of times bees will have challenges recognizing space, you know, left and right or above them. And someone will say, well, you know, when do I need to add a super or when should I add a second deep? You know, and I've said, well, generically speaking, you know, you know, in the springtime, things are happening really, really fast. I would rather you act a little early than to act too late. You do still need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, you can have colder nights that just pop in and be unseasonably cold right, and, right. and they've still got to stay warm. So, you know, I say in that like 60, 70% range of capacity, that's where you probably need to look at expanding. But how many times have we gone in and seen, you know, three frames to the left, two frames to the right and queen cells in the middle and they're going, well, they had, know, they had yeah. plenty of room. So I'd be curious on your thoughts on, you know, any recommendations around, because what I'll do is I'll go ahead and, and I'll go right into the middle of the brood chamber, slide everything left and right, pull a frame from the outside, drop, you know, wax foundation in the middle, and then it just forces them to draw it up. And that works pretty well. But as far as if you had any thoughts or suggestions, and then and then on top of that, you know, like when do you recommend supering? Like when do you, do you have any kind of indicators where you say, whenever sure. I see this, that's where I make the call? So when I'm starting... And so you're trying to get the bees to pull wax on, on unwaxed frames. And so you're starting to build up that colony, right? So you've got your bottom, whatever the, the brood box is. As you see the bees expanding, when you see them working the two outside frames, and this applies to either an eight frame or a 10 frame box, 
that honey frame, right? So the order of the frames that they, they the, the order that the bees were the frames is they have the two outside frames are honey. The next two frames, so let's say one and eight are honey. Two and seven are bee bread, right? That's their larder. That's where they're putting the, the food for the nurse bees to produce the, the royal jelly on the hypolangium plants. And then the, the three to six, those three to six frames are the nursery, right? That's the brood chamber. So when you start seeing in your first box that they're working, those two the frames, one and ten, that's when you add a super, right? And if you're the medium super or if, it's a, if you've got a deep super, you can add a medium. Some people like to add them a second deep on there. I prefer to do a deep and then start adding medium. That second medium, if it's done correctly, should be also a brood chamber, right? Brood space. What you, if you want to harvest honey, you don't want them mixing the nectar that they're storing with the brood chamber. So if you're, if you're thinking you want to have one super of honey, remember you're not feeding them sugar water because if you're feeding them sugar water, you don't collect that. That's not honey. That's just stored sugar water. You would put your queen excluder under that second super for two weeks until they build the honey band over the top of that, uh, those frames, right, on the bottom. The, make sure all of the frames have the honey band. The queen normally doesn't cross the honey band. She stays below that. So that means she would not be climbing into that second super, right, medium super, and laying there. I don't use queen excluders for that. I don't care. You know, I'm not, if they get, she gets into that second super, that tells me she, she ran out of room down in the bottom. And I just leave those frames then for the bees in the wintertime, right? Once they close, once they hatch, the honey's there, and they can they can have that for winter food. And then, as you see them filling out again, the outside two frames of that medium super. Now you get to have fun with it, and that's what's called checkerboarding. You want them to go up to the second medium, right? So you've got, they've got the first medium. Maybe they have some brood in there. They have a little bit of honey as well. Now you want your second super to have just honey in it. So you're going to pull a couple of the frames that are on that first medium super that have bees on them, and you're going to put them up in your second box. And you're going to put new frames in the bottom, and you're going to have put them so that there's every other frame. One is a pull frame of, of maybe they put some nectar in a frame, an empty frame that they need to pull the wax out. And then another frame that has bees on whatever they're working on and an empty frame. That's called checkerboarding your honey super. You do not checkerboard your brood chamber. You want to keep your brood chamber together. Because the bees have set that up. They know, remember the nurse bees are brand new. They're taking care of those babies. And so they know what their little jobs are as beginning bees. As start as, soon as you start messing with the order in the brood chamber, you can cause issues with the nurse bees that are supposed to be taking care of those bees. Now, Jeff, you mentioned that sometimes you drop a frame in the middle of the brood chamber. You can do that. In most cases, though, you need to be checking those, those uh, frames in the brood chamber first. And what I've noticed around here is people will pull a frame out and they'll go, oh, she has room. Well, turn around and have the sun over your shoulder and then look at your frame. In most cases, you will see that when the foragers are working faster than the queen is laying eggs, they have nectar in that circle that's in the middle of the brood frame. And they're storing because they don't have, you haven't added supers, right? You haven't given them that second or that third super. So they put that wherever they can. And you'll see the little shiny nectar coming through. If you're doing it without the sun shining over your shoulder, it will look like it's empty. <laughs> That's a really great point. Okay. So you need to make sure you're looking. You can also take a flashlight, you know, a flashlight as well. But you need to make sure the queen really has room to lay. And if she does, that's great. 
you know, sometimes it can look spotty because they're little bees, you know, eclosing. They look like little Star Wars creatures, you know, they're running around, they're blonde and they're fuzzy and they're just wonderful to watch. But the critical part is that queen has to have her, her room. The other thing I see that happens too is sometimes we'll put frames in there and for whatever reason, they don't like the frame. It can be, it didn't have enough wax at the factory. I tend to wax all my frames now before I put them in. It's better to have too much wax on them than not enough. Sometimes they don't like the black frames. You know, we put black frames in the brood box so you can see the eggs better. Some of my bees like those black frames. Some of them them don't. But if you don't see bees on a frame, take a good close look at the frame. Now, you may say, well, they've got room. Well, no, according to the bees, they don't like that frame, so they don't have room. That doesn't count as space to them. So you need to replace that frame and give them another one and see if they'll work the other one. That's, you know, and, and one thing I've said along those lines before is if you had a black one on one side, on the opposite side where they haven't expanded yet, either go with some traditional wax foundation or try the yellow, you know, something like that. So yes. at least it gives them an option. You can, you can compare live, you know. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, when you're working those, those opposite frames, right, the one and eight, if you see them that they pull the wax off on one side, but they're not working the other side yet, you can pull that frame up and, and turn it around and, and face the, the, the side of the frame that they're not working to the inside, which will encourage them to pull the wax off on that frame. Good idea. Eventually, they may, they may do that, but I've, you know, and that gives them, so as far as the bees are concerned, they have new space. They don't, for some reason, they don't seem to count that space if it's facing the hive wall. <laughs> But if you put it on the inside, it's like, oh, we just got some new new room here. So that buys you a little time. If you're out of frames, you've got to order some. You know, all of a sudden you're panicking. You need to go borrow somebody's frames. That'll give you a couple of days to be able to get some equipment if you don't have it. Excellent idea. Very good. Now I have one here. I think I mentioned it to you earlier. Where we have, you know, the. Um, the regular episodes we do on the podcast, but we also have the bee buzz where we kind of consolidate a whole lot of questions that come in via the discord or email. So I saved this one for you today. This is one that came in. Okay. I think it was, with, it was within the last 24 hours, but this will kind of give you an idea of some of the questions that we typically field here. So it says newbie question. I have a very strong hive that started as a nuke this spring with the recent hot weather. They've been bearding quite a bit, nothing out of the ordinary. Yesterday evening, they appeared to be doing the pre-swarm routine. Hundreds of bees were flying in circles outside of the hive and were pretty agitated. I've always heard this happens prior to a swarm and have seen this activity before they settled down into a proper swarm on a branch or something. This time, they settled down about an hour later and never appeared to leave the hive. My grandfather's bees have done this several times this year, and after checking the next day, found they never left in a swarm. Any thoughts? Well, first, have you checked the bottom of the frames in that in that hive to see if you have any swarm cells? You know, that would be an indication. Uh, even if you have a swarm cell, like it looks like a peanut, right, at the bottom of the frame or the bottom of the where, wherever the foundation ends on a frame, check your peanut cells and see if there's royal jelly inside. If there's royal jelly in there, yep, they are, they are planning on swarming. That's number one. The other thing is, with this weather the way it is, and if it's a very strong colony, the flights that you're seeing in front, are they? if they're figure eight, those are brand new bees practicing to using their wings and learning how to fly. And that they're doing it here right now, here as well, because strong colonies have a lot of little bees declosing, and with a temperatures that that are been so record hot here they do they do go out of the hive and they hang out on the front or the back of the hive to help regulate the temperature inside the hive they want to keep it at 93 degrees right the brood chamber at 93 degrees but when the temperatures get as hot as they are they they want to remove their little body heat right that they can generate to keep it cool they're trying to keep it cool. You'll see a lot of water carriers running around bringing water back to the hive as well because they use that to create air conditioning kind of 
conditions inside the hive. So if you're if your bees are swarming, you can't miss that. Jeff, tell me if you think that that's that's right. I mean, I've seen swarming, and you it's like a little roar that starts up, and the bees are agitated, and you you could swear that you know that they are taking numbers, right, to get ready. <laughs> and, and you can see bees nudging other bees. You can see them because they are they are trying to get everybody kind of organized. You know, can't miss the little suitcases. I'm joking. But <laughs> they, it, 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 it is a very distinct sound. And when they start to swarm, it's, it's, a, it's a cloud that uh, and with a roar that comes out of the hive and they don't go very far because the new queen you know she's just they've just slimmed her down to be able to if it's a initial swarm if it's a virgin swarm right an after swarm they could be tiny tiny little cluster and they may not have been able to get honey before they left but i i don't think you'll mistake a swarm once you see one yeah, my gut when I first, you know, first read through it, I thought, you know, it sounds to me like maybe some new, you know, nurse bees have been promoted. They've worked their way up through the ranks. They're going out for the yeah. first time and they were, you know, as as the spring, you know, everybody's being born. I mean, you got, you know, maybe a thousand new bees coming every day. So a bunch of them probably came of age around the same time and they said, "Hey, it's a beautiful day. Let's all go out and do our orientation flights." That's kind of what was in my mind and Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me too. Yeah, another member had posted that, and I, it was funny because I said, well, I'm going to save this, and I'll answer this. I'll, I'll have our, our you know, interviewee <laughs> answer. So he answered, then he goes, oh, crap, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it, <laughs> but, but it's always great to get different perspectives, so that's, that's great. Oh, sure. Well, we, I, we did go on a swarm call once. It was 40 feet up in the tree, and the, it was a beekeeper. He wanted us to help us catch a swarm, and we violated every OSHA rule. Okay, he had he had you know his truck, and then a ladder on top of the truck, and you know a bucket of I mean you know an extension pole. We were it was a small miracle nobody was hurt, and he was trying to get the the swarm out of the tree, and he aggravated them enough that they actually left the tree, flew down, and went back into the original hive. Oh wow! We stood there and we went. Oh my, I didn't know they could do that, you know. And I've also seen colonies that have swarmed and left and then followed by a second swarm. This year I had a swarm that we we collected as the back of a police SWAT truck, you know, it's like a little <laughs> small tank. They had moved into the little turret area on top. It had four virgin queens in that swarm. So Swarms can be in different configurations and for different reasons, but the the description that that your listener had, I think, is a pretty standard summer day, you know, around a hive, where the bees are enjoying the weather and they're trying to keep it cool, and they were not swarming. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Now, you mentioned so a few years ago. I had a swarm. It was a big, strong colony that I had. I just, you know, I was very attached to them personally. I loved them because they were yes, just, they were just, yes. they were so fierce and very gentle. Just there were so many great things about this hive. And I think I had been traveling or something happened where I just didn't get that kind of first spring inspection done in time. And I pulled up in my truck and I look out and I just see them streaming out the front door. And I'm like, oh. so I've got a huge oak tree in my front yard. And I'm watching them go from the the hive to the oak tree. Just I mean, and it's just oh, it's probably yeah. It was probably uh, maybe forty feet, thirty or forty feet up, or, or I'm sorry, away from the colony. But then they were up in the tree, a good you know fifty right. feet. So there was no way I was getting to them, and I just thought, no, this is terrible. You know, here I'm losing these great bees, and there was a like a tropical storm or some kind of a storm system coming through and it rained for three days straight the cluster just <gasps> sat there in the tree and it just basically rained for three days straight and i thought that i don't know what's going to happen they can't scout they can't they right. can't do it and on day four that morning beautiful sunny day and just as you described they streamed one by one right back into the original hive and i was yep i was just shocked and what i ended up doing is I put a regular, just, you know, uh, 10 frame deep, and I put it right under that spot. I put some swarm lure, you know, swarm trap, uh, oh, swarm lure. I sprayed in there a little bit, and I left it, 
And then I ended up catching a swarm about two weeks later. I'm not sure if it was a different one or, or whatever, but I was thinking to myself, well, if I put this here, maybe they'll just go straight down. Well, they didn't. So I had never seen that before either. So you always learn something no. new. Yeah. Well, have you heard of hanging? They call it hanging around here. I don't think the so. The old beekeepers will talk about taking a pot and pan when you have a swarm and going out and beating with a spoon on the metal. And that supposedly will attract the bees back either into the original colony or into a hive. I've never done it. I never remember to do that when I have a swarm. But I always thought that was an interesting, you know, story. It's 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 lore that's been passed down in the beekeeping communities that that's one way to get the swarms back. I will try it one day. I just I just never have a pot and pan when I'm <laughs> trying to catch a swarm, you know. I will add that to my to-do list, so we'll have to try to figure that one out. That's neat. Definitely will compare notes. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I'm down to, I think I've only got two more questions left here. So we're, we're getting near the end. But, um, so... This is a, a gal from uh, from our Discord room, very active in the room there up in Michigan, and she asked if there's any suggestions for those who are near commercial farmers, things to watch out for, preventative measures. Um, obviously, certain pesticides and, and herbicides and things can affect the hives. Uh, you know, my personal recommendation is, you know, try to communicate with them early, often, you know, give, Absolutely. give them a couple of jars of honey every year and, and make sure you know that they're friendly, that, you know, but is there anything you can recommend outside of that? Well, there, I think the nationwide network, the voluntary network called Bee Watch, and where you register your hive locations on a map so that the pesticide applicators uh, know what they're where there are colonies and they can try to not spray them when the plants are in bloom, right? That's the critical part is you don't want to have the bees exposed to pesticides when they're collecting the nectar and pollen. It's called bee watch. And the other thing is talk to your extension offices when, because they're the ones that normally teach to teach the um, EPA guidelines for private pesticide application. And make sure that they're telling their the private applicators the correct information. Missouri, I happened to take the private pesticide applicator training here in February of 2019. I was just curious to see what they were teaching. And they were telling the applicators that bees only flew in the morning so they could spray in the afternoon. <laughs> you could have killed me off the ceiling, okay? And so I ended up working with them, and now they have a brand-new pesticide applicator training program that actually teaches pollinator protection steps. And so we've changed it. But you, you need to look at that because it can be something very innocuous that somebody, you know, doesn't know and they think that they're giving the right information. So double check that and make sure that the extension offices that are doing the training are giving the correct information. And then for sure, if you can have a relationship with the applicators, by all means. You know, a honey jar at Thanksgiving will go a long way to remind them that they need to be careful of what they're applying the next year. Same thing with farmers. You know, they they may not even think about it. But yeah. if you can develop a relationship with them, I think that's really good. We have, I don't have, I'm not, don't have a farm around me, but I'm in a small neighborhood. I'm the only house behind here. I have seven neighbors and they, every time they come in, the whole the rest of the neighborhood tells them, go see the bee lady. I keep <laughs> jars of honey, you know, and I welcome to the neighborhood. And Thanksgiving Eve or Christmas Eve, depending on the weather, I walk the neighborhood and give them all a jar of honey to put on their Thanksgiving table or their Christmas table. And not every once in a while, somebody will say something about the bees and I don't have to say a word because the neighbor's automatically <laughs> jump in and say, oh, they're wonderful. I have better flowers. They don't cause any trouble. The kids love to go down to see them. 
I don't have to say a word, you know, and, and so being a good neighbor as well, I don't, I don't, I don't point my hives up the hill, right? They're pointed down the hill. So if people are walking in the neighborhood, they don't run into bees, you know, you just need to be a good neighbor to consider what, how the bees might, might impact the people who are around you. And that includes farmers. Well, I think you kind of had me at uh, the key takeaway for me is I just need to be walking down your street around Thanksgiving time for him to get some free honey. That's what I can, <laughs> that was my key takeaway. That's very true. Well, you know, it's funny because we usually extract in somewhere, I, I usually do it right around late June, just so that we have stuff on hand around 4th of July, because there's always people around and you, you know, you give, sure. a, give a jar of honey for 4th of July. So it's usually like that mid to late, you know, June time frame And Inevitably, you know, some of the girls, I have three daughters, so, you know, the girls will be around, they have a couple of friends, and you send them home with a jar of honey every time you get that phone call. Hey, can we can we buy some more of that? So, I know, it's true. It's yep, true. Uh, it's, it's great for building relationships, and it's worth its weight in gold, so it's always, always fun. I've done it both ways. I do sell honey if I have a good year. I have a farmer's market, and I have a little uh, um, a, a company that buys my honey. But I have to tell you, I have more fun giving it away. Sure. You know, I have a, a tire company that does my maintenance on my car, and those two guys there love honey. And I've given them two jars, and I haven't paid for a service call in three visits. <laughs> well, I'm still working on the honey, you know. So I love that. There you I, go. The idea of bartering, the idea yes. of giving something of value that they obviously appreciate, and then they're returning the favor there's something about that that I love. That fact that we are recognizing that each one of us has something the other one wants, and then we're valuing that. I, I like that a lot. A hundred percent. It goes right back to what you said earlier about not really knowing where our food comes from. Well, that's kind of where when you're, when you're interacting with those people and you're like, hey, I could really use a dozen eggs. Hey, I could really use some honey, you know, and being able to work together, get to know people. And regardless of where, the, where you are in any kind of faith or anything, it's, it has its own kind of fellowship to it, just that interaction right. with others. And, and we, you know, we're social creatures. We need that. So I think it's, it's mm-hmm. great on a lot of levels. Well, Charlotte, I've got one last question on the list here today. And uh, it, it's a bit of a hot topic, pun intended, but you brought it up earlier. So it was on the list too. Okay. So, one of the most common things I hear is, hey, I'm usually good for my first hive, but I cannot keep that smoker lit for anything beyond the first oh, one. Oh, that's a good one. What do you, what do you recommend? <laughs> so one of the things you have to look, if you buy, especially if you bought used equipment or used smokers, people tend to buy used smokers, is make sure that at the bottom of that smoker is that little dish, that little circle that has little legs. Right? It's like a fireplace grate. You need to have that so that you can get oxygen through the smoker and whatever fuel you put in there. A lot of smokers get sold without that little plate that's at the bottom that has little legs. And when you empty your smoker out, sometimes you empty it out with all of your <laughs> debris from your smoker and you forget to get it. And then all of a sudden you don't have one. You can make them. Out of, I've made them out of wire, right, out of number six, I think, hardware cloth, where I've folded it up into a little square with the little prongs at the bottom. That's really important. It's probably the biggest issue that people have when they're trying to keep the smoker going. Secondly, smoker fuels, you don't want to use stuff that has chemicals in it. So some people say they use old jeans. I don't like those because you're burning chemicals that have been used to dye that fabric. I like cardboard, the cardboard that's not been treated. I use newspapers, the black and white, not the colored stuff. You go to a home and garden center, you can also get corn cobs Ah. that, that are corn cobs are wonderful. Mix up corn cobs with the the, the, the uh, litter that they use for rabbits in cages, it's like, it looks like shavings. That combination is a wonderful fire starter. I also lose pine cones. I can find them here, pine needles. The, the critical thing is to get that little fire kernel started. So I will take half of a pine cone and get the fire going in that little pine cone and then put it down, and then I will add little sticks. I, I have lots of sticks around here, dry tree sticks, and I will 
put a little, make a little teepee over that pine cone so that the sticks get going. And they're, they're producing coal, right? They're, they're becoming little charcoal. And then I will stuff it with uh, pine needles. I love dried leaves. That makes the most wonderful, cool smoke. And so you just keep puffing at it, right? You're trying to build up that bottom part of coal and then add your whatever fuel you want. The corn cob bedding mixture lasts a long time. And since I don't keep my smokers going for that long, I don't worry about having to have something go for a long time. But I make sure that I have coals at the bottom that are, that are lifting off the bottom of the smoker. To test it, you want to put your smoker on your elbow, right, or the back of your knee to make sure it's cool smoke. You don't want hot smoke because you'll burn off your bee wings and their antenna. And if it happens to be hot, open your smoker up and put leaves, dried leaves, something that's going to take the, the heat of the smoke down. I've been known to just spray water and just get the smoke, I mean, get the fire down lower and then built it back up with something like dried leaves or I'm trying to think of, I've got cardboard, small pieces of cardboard. Yeah, you don't want a hot smoke. That's, that's not good for your bees. You know, it's funny when people first ask the question to me, I just said, I don't, I, I walk in the yard and I just start looking around, you know, and it's, but I tell right. people it's a mixture of the small and the big. You, you want the bigger stuff there to build those coals you were talking about, but you also exactly. need the smaller stuff to get it going. And it's always fun to see what people use. Like I have a sawmill and I have, you know, oh, cause nice. that was, well, that was my whole thing. You know, I was starting to look at the price of wood years ago and I had a friend who's in the tree business and I thought, well, he can get me free trees and I can start milling and I can make all my own hardware so I won't have to spend yep. you know, $75 a hive to build or to buy one. So that was how that started. Well, now I've got this big pile of sawdust. I thought, well, this right. is going to be amazing. The problem with it is it's just a little bit too fine. So I do sprinkle a little bit in there with it. Um, you know, and of yeah. course it's got some pine in there too. So the pine sap can, can help a little bit. But if, if I put too much in, it almost smothers the fire. Right. You, you just have to play with it. You know, you'll find the combination that works for you. I have a lot of uh, my, I have a shady garden, so I have a lot of twigs that come down and they're dry. I, it's not like I'll collect them. We just had some rain, so I'll go out and collect them and I'll stick them in a, in a bag, let them continue to dry out. And the next time I need a smoker going, I will pull those out and they work well for me. I can get them the little charcoal developed on those little twigs. And we're talking about maybe the size of a finger thickness, not okay. really thick. Yeah. And then, and I break them down into two to three inch lengths and then build that little teepee, you know, inside. And then I have my little container of dried leaves because I have more than enough leaves <laughs> and that works for me. But I think for people, depending on what you need to be careful about what you put in there, what you're burning. You don't want to be burning chemicals, you don't want to be, have it too hot, and you don't want to hurt yourself. Remember that that thing is hot. And so learn to open it up and close it carefully. Watch the backside. You don't want fire shooting out, you know, <laughs> where, you're, the, where you're, you're adding oxygen to the fuel. And practice a couple times. You'll come up with the right combination for yourself. But it is tough. It is tough when you're starting. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, as having not gone down this path yet, but I but I am uh, here shortly. But I think that is part of isn't it maybe the journeyman level, maybe or one of the levels. I think lighting the smoker is a requirement, right? I my lips are sealed. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I was hoping maybe I had an in, insider track here. Maybe Sorry, I could get fast I track. Can't maybe. No. <laughs> inside secrets. You should know, right? Yeah. You should know. Just like sure. you should know how to write, properly use the hive tool. Absolutely. When you start banging on top of the frame because the bees have propletized it, you are not using your hive tool correctly. Yeah. You should be able to use that hive tool quietly. The bees don't even know you're there. You're just gently moving, you know, detaching that frame from the side of the box and moving it seamlessly. There should be no excitement going on when you're doing that. And, I, and again, when you're beginning, it's hard, you know, because you're excited, you're scared. The bees, you know, you probably made some noise that you didn't mean, mean, mean to make. You're going too fast because you want to seal that up. Take your time. 
I, to me, it's magical. My first couple inspections of the season because the weather's perfect. You know, it's 70 <laughs> degrees, sunny, no wind. The flowers are blooming. I'm in my hive. The bees are happy. You know, I think it's great. I love doing that. Oh, That's absolutely. Lovely. And I think you nailed it earlier, right? You know, when you first were talking about how you don't use a smoker and how you just go in, you take mm-hmm. your time. I mean, that. I think that when you add the fear that you mentioned earlier and you combine that with how do I get out of a, a scary situation, that fight or flight mode, while well, I run away. So the quickest, right. the best way to do that is to get it over with as fast as possible, which again, sure. is, again is now completely opposite of what you need to be doing. And I've told people, Hey, if you're going into the hive and you make a mistake, sometimes you know, we've all pulled a frame out, you drop it and it just causes yeah. chaos. You know, just, just close it back up. You can walk away. It's okay. You know, you come back another time, but don't feel, don't put that kind of pressure on yourself that you have to do everything within. And I've told people, I'll do an inspection on a hive in three minutes, four minutes. Now, this is a scenario where I had, you know, 50 or 100 of them I was inspecting in a day, and I'm looking for queen cells, and I'm moving fast. So pop, look real quick, boom, go to the next one. Right. But as a hobbyist who's starting out, this should be something that is a relaxing, peaceful, enjoyable journey, just like you just mentioned, right? So take your time, and I, I think you nailed it. They know, they get to know you. I know this sounds crazy, but... I can go through my apiary without a piece of equipment on and just look in front of the hives and check, you know, under the, the cover and not be, my bees are not excited because I'm regularly out in them. And I also am not afraid of them. So I don't put out the fear pheromone. You know, yes. we have a pheromone when we are concerned with things. And so the bees themselves know. Matter of fact, this was funny. This was a January a couple of years ago. There was a plant sale. I'm, I'm terrible about plant sales. <laughs> and so I had a bunch of plants in the back of my car. And all fall, I was, a friend of mine was digging up her garden. And so I was bringing plants home in boxes and whatever. And the bees would always come and check out was in the car. And so this particular January, I pulled up the car and I went in to get to go open the garage and turned around and there were bees on my car <laughs> waiting to see what was in the back of the, now, you know, here that they only have a three day memory or whatever. I hate to tell you this. I don't believe that because there were bees waiting <laughs> to check out my cache of plants, you know, and I've also seen them in the garden. I'll be out there weeding or something and all of a sudden there'll be bees coming around and, you know, just kind of looking at what I'm doing. There, it, you can have a wonderful relationship with them that is not a negative experience. But you have to get your mindset around that they are not after you. You know, this is a, a joint team approach. And I don't use the term aggressive. They're defensive. They're defending their, their home once they establish themselves. You know, a swarm is not because they're, they don't have a home. The other thing is that I always tell people that are starting, I'll say, enjoy your honeymoon in your first year, because the second year is totally different than your first year of beekeeping. And so when the beekeepers say, oh, well, I'm not wearing equipment because the bees are, you know, they were really, uh, they were very mild and they weren't. I always say, always wear your hood. You don't always have to have gloves, but make sure you have your hood on. Because to a bee, our nose openings and our mouth looks like a black threat, which is why they go after stinging our nose and sometimes our eyes, because they don't see as well as we do. But this is a threat to them. So make sure you have your veil on. And if you can get comfortable managing your bees or uh, handling your bees without gloves, that's great, because they will tell you when you make a mistake. And you will be forced to go slower. I prefer doing it with that blood. So it took me a while to get there. And I think the fact that I'm not afraid of them, you know, I can go work other bees. I very, I can't remember the last time I had gloves on. And I'm not, I'm not boasting. I'm just saying to you, you can get your mindset to a point where you understand the risk you're taking, right? You might get stung. You understand what the bees are doing. And you're making choices that are in both of your best interests, in the best interest of your bees and in your best interest. And it usually ends up with nobody getting stung. You know, I think I was probably, I'm guessing here, but maybe five or six years in, and it just hadn't even crossed my mind about even the idea that I wouldn't 
wear gloves. I saw some people doing mm-hmm. it in videos. And I thought, well, they're, they're doing it because they're crazy, right? Well, then I right. started really <laughs> doing more research and, and learning about it. And I think it might have been Michael Palmer that was talking about it. And he was like, well, yeah, I have better dexterity and I can, and I can feel right. if, I, if I grab a bee with my finger and I squeeze, I can, I can feel it squirming and I can lift my hand up. But you lose all of that dexterity with the gloves on. So I think it was, right. yeah, it was about six years ago. I thought, all right, well, let me just leave one on and then I'll put the nitrile glove on the other hand. So I, you know, I kind of eased my way in. Well, oh, then that's, I, a, that's a nice idea. Yeah. yeah. So I realized, well, the nitrile, you know, on the one hand, I didn't get stung. So I, I think that when I moved on the next time, I just did two of the nitrile gloves and nothing happened. And I did that probably maybe one more time. And then I thought, they're not messing with me. And then once I went right. completely gloveless, it was a whole new world to me. I mean, yes, yeah, like you said, you, yeah, you're going to catch a sting here and there, but you know, you scrape the stinger off, hit a couple puffs of smoke, and you go right back to it. Right. And the other thing is, when you're starting, there's a tendency to get to not fit the gloves. I, we see this all the time here. So you, yes, you want the suit a little bigger, but your gloves need to fit. <laughs> so if you're going to buy a pair of gloves, make sure you go somewhere where you can try them on because the sizing is completely off. I wear, I, I have wide hands, but I wear an XX small in, in a beekeeping glove. And that means I have no extra inch, you know, at the tip of my fingers. And it, 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 it actually like a nitrile glove, it fits me. And that's what you want. When you're using gloves where you have so much room that you can barely hold the frame and you're squishing bees left and right, you are not going to have a good experience. I can guarantee that. Absolutely. So spend, yep. spend the time finding the right gloves for yourself. You know, you can go to your club and ask people who have the beekeeping equipment, ask them to bring in their gloves for you to try on. That's when a really good idea. When we have our class, yeah, we bring, we bring, we just have all the bee, you know, we have four or five beekeepers bring in their suits. Some people have the long suits. I've only all owned the jacket and their gloves. And we'll say, go try them on. Find where those gloves were purchased. Most people know. And get the glove that fits you and then go order those, you know, and that has really saved a lot of people having the bad experience, you know, because at that stage in your beekeeping, you name your bees, right? You know, Frank, Carol, <laughs> Joe, Joey, you know, you're so you're so conscious of what you're doing to your bees that every time you squish one, it's devastating. And so that makes the experience a bad experience for some people who are starting. So if you can minimize that, and yes, we all know some bees will die out of this, but, you know, you shouldn't do it because you don't have the right equipment on. Now, that's an absolutely great suggestion. You know, I I was thinking to a a few years ago where it must have been probably around that time I was making the transition. I couldn't find my gloves, and I needed some. I think I was doing a big move, and I thought, "I've, I've got to track down some gloves and I couldn't find mine, and I found my daughter's, and I was like, well, i got to make, make use of what I've got here. And it right. turn, turned out, I think hers were a medium. I, I have pretty good-sized hands, but hers were a medium. But I put them on, and they actually were better because they <gasps> my fingers completely filled the entire glove, and they, exactly. were, they were tight and snug. And I thought, well, that's interesting. If I ever buy new ones, I'm going to buy one size smaller. So that was a good little opportunity to learn something. That's a good tip. Well, you know, our moms always teach us when we buy shoes, right? We buy it with one inch extra space at the toes. And I think some of the beekeepers I've spoken with over the years use that same philosophy. If you can have more gloves, you won't get stung, right? There's more room for your, 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 your fingers to kind of, you know, hide from the bees. And it's like, no, no, that's not the right way to think about this. You need to think about your ability to gently and slowly handle the equipment and yes there's always a chance you'll get some but in most cases again if the bees are happy they're not out there wanting to sting i mean obviously they know if they sting they die right so they have to be threatened enough that they're willing to give their life to protect the colony and so that's got to be a a bit of a threat you know they've got to choose to, to make that decision and then let, leave the pheromone for other bees to attack. And I, I've never seen that. I mean, I've had people tell me that their bees chase them around the yard, and I've never had that experience. And I said, well, what did you do? <laughs> well, these are aggressive bees. Mm, no, something was not quite right with the colony. 
You know, if they they just would not go out to do that as a lark. There's something is not right, and so that the challenge there is just to start backing up and trying to figure out what it is instead of blaming. You know, the colony, and I've heard people say you have to be queen. In in most cases, in my experience, there is it's a space issue. It's not about the queen. For example, in August, this might this is coming up. I've had people say to me, well, the queen's not laying. I don't see any eggs. Well, if it's hot like it is now and there's nothing in nature, guess what? The bees are eating the eggs. They're, they're getting the protein from the queen's eggs. And so the queen may still be laying, but they're disappearing because the bees need the sustenance that they can't get in nature. It's be careful about making assumptions that the queen's not laying, so ergo you have to replace her. She may very well be laying, but there are other factors that are influencing her her success. You know, I wish I could have like flashing lights and asterisks all around what you just said because I can't. I, again, I remember this those first few years where I thought, "Oh no, my, something's wrong with my queen." And I would go through the colony around this time of year, and I'm looking at every frame, and there's no eggs anywhere, and I'm just thinking, "I can't find the queen. She's she's gone." And it, I mean, it happened to me. It happened to one of my neighbors. We just sure. thought that we're just really bad beekeepers, and the reality right. is that they're not going to make new brood if there's no if there's no food, there's no brood, you know. And right, that's and, right. And, but you know, it's funny as a new beekeeper, I had no idea, and, that, and that's the whole reason that I kind of started this journey about what I'm doing because there's, you know, getting the information out there to other people so that they know, hey, there's a lot of moving parts here and things you want to consider. So that was a, another great point, you know, Charlotte. I sincerely, I truly appreciated your time today. It's been a wonderful discussion. I mean, I could probably, I, I think we could probably go for another two hours because there's just, <laughs> there's just so much great information and I, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Is there anything that you wanted to get out or any message in particular that you wanted to share with the, the listening audience around the world here? Well, I know there are people who think about getting into beekeeping and for whatever reason, it's not for them. You know, maybe they invest in it and they decide they don't want to do it or they take a class and they don't want to do it. And that's perfectly fine. You can have native bees that only are around for three months or so. Different parts of the world that have different native bees. But you can find a native bee house and house those bees. And if you don't want to mess with them, plant more flowers. You know, get, get the grass, the turf grass that you have on your front lawn. Slowly move your flower beds out so you have less and less grass and plant more flowers. They need foraging. They need food sources. That that continues to dry up on them worldwide, and we just need to be adding that so they have a place to go and get food and be healthy. That's a great point. You know, I'm actually, I'm that person that I kind of get in trouble. We have a thing, an ordinance within the city where, you know, if your grass is more than a foot high, you know, they can cite you and give you a hard time about yeah. it. And I, I despise mowing in the spring because I have all these beautiful natural flowers that come up in my yard. And I oh. always, I wait till the very end and, and I haven't been cited yet because I've got a nice Leyland Cypress line of defense against the city now. But, uh, but it's just, I just love leaving them like they are. I wish I could just let it grow and, and have all the native wildflowers there, but you know, at some point, I gotta, I have to conform. So, <laughs> well, you, you work with your city government, though. There are more municipalities who are aware of the plight of pollinators and are willing to work on that. You can have native gardens now in some larger metropolitan areas because local beekeepers and master gardeners have worked with them. So, yeah. you know, if you have a representative where you live, go talk to them. You know, what, what are the chances are that we can get this change so that we can have more pollinator habitat? And you might be surprised at, at how receptive they might be. That's a really good idea. And like I said, I've got, I think it's about 200 Leyland Cypress that are kind of all around the front. So there's only the driveway, you know, where you can see through. I so, see. Right, right. so they might, I might be able to work that out. So I will, uh, I'll add that to my to-do list and, and see if I can get, get those folks on board a little bit. Yeah, well, let me know how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And I do owe you a follow-up email. I will get you an email for those uh, uh, for the rec- requesting the recipe and then uh, the, yeah. those inner covers I was telling you about. But, Charlotte, again, thank you so very much for your time. And if you ever have you know any messaging you need to get out to anybody or if you'd like to come back on again and talk to us again, feel free to let me know. And uh, 
If you have any, you know, follow-on messages you'd like me to post in the Discord, or if you'd like to be invited to the Discord, we can send you an invite there. You're always always happy to come and uh, oh, join us and chat and share your, your knowledge with us. Well, thank you very much. It's always fun to talk these. And you're right, we probably could go on and on. <laughs> and I want to wish everybody who's here, you know, good luck. And remember, it's not a black and white situation. So the best thing you can do is have people like Jeff who are willing to help you and give you a forum to ask your questions. Ask your questions, post your pictures. I think the beekeeping community in general is a very kind and supportive community. So you're not there by yourself. I would agree. Very well said. Well, again, Charlotte, thank you so very much for your time. Have a great holiday weekend, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to you again sometime soon. Look forward to it, Jeff. Take care. Okay, take care. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, that wraps up our time with Charlotte. Again, Charlotte, thank you so very much for being on the podcast with us. That was just a, a whole lot of fun. Really, really great time. Sorry to hear about all the heat and the, and the crazy weather you've had out there in the Midwest. Glad to see that you did get a little bit of rain to hopefully cool some things off. But again, I cannot thank you enough. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So ladies and gentlemen, as always, feel free to reach out. Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. If you'd like to join us in the Discord room, just go to beekeepingfornewbies. That's N-E-W-B-E-E-S.com. About halfway down on the left-hand side, there is a link to the Discord server. Got about 135 people or so in there. Love to have you join in with us and uh, engage in some conversation and have some fun. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll see you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.